This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Ryan O'Farrell. He's an independent researcher focusing mostly on the Congo. He's going to be telling us about how the wars in Congo that you never see in the news are splintering and turning into many different wars at the same time. You've got different tribesmen fighting other tribesmen, farmers fighting farmers. There's even an ISIS-affiliated cell now in the Congo hiding out in the jungles. So Ryan's going to explain all that for us and tell us why Congo is really a place people should be focusing on rather than just thinking, oh, you know, war happens there, that's it. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash popularfront. Every little bit helps. There are premium episodes, all sorts there for a very little price, and it helps us keep going. It's quite hard to explain in a nutshell what's going on in the Congo, but it's a place you never, ever see in the news. And right now, what was, you know, a few conflicts has kind of splintered into dozens of different ones maybe you can give us you know a brief overview of what is going on right now in in the congo yeah for sure so i I think the the splintering thing is probably uh the the most salient point um you know congo doesn't have one war it's got you know 10 or 20 or, or or dozens even um so that all kind of kicked off in the 1990s um with the the rwandan genocide basically you know uh uh, over a million refugees kind of went into Congo after the the RPF took over in Rwanda. Um, so the RPF is the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Um, so it's kind of the, the Tutsi-dominated what was a rebel movement in the early 90s. So they, they fought a civil war against the Hutu-dominated government in Rwanda from uh, 90 to 93. The Tutsis and the Hutus, they're just different tribes, right? Yeah, so the Tutsi are about 15% of the population in Rwanda. Um, the Hutu are about 85%. Um, Tutsi were kind of traditionally the, the aristocracy. Um, but when the, the Belgians came in, they kind of put a much more legalistic um, uh, definition to that. And it, it really kind of solidified a lot of um, kind of interethnic tensions. Um, so then upon independence, that kind of switched. There was a you know, the the Hutu revolution um, in in fifty nine, and so a lot of Tutsi were driven out of the country, um, and there was a Hutu republic was declared. Um, so you know, there's a lot of Tutsi who are not very happy with the the new regime that came in, um, and kind of organized um, rebel movements. And finally, in nineteen ninety, they invaded from Uganda. Um, so there was a civil war then from 90 to 93, um, a peace accord. And then in 94, the Hutu president, Habyarimana, his airplane was shot down and that really kicked off the genocide. From there, uh, the, the civil war obviously kind of immediately restarted as soon as you know, Tutsi were being massacred. Um, but the Tutsi rebels actually then won the civil war um, and defeated the genocidaires, the um, Rwandan army as well as kind of these affiliated um, extremist militias. Um, and when they won, basically the, the genocidaires and a million to a million and a half Hutu then fled out of Rwanda into Congo, um, which totally destabilized the whole situation in Congo. Um, and that kind of persisted for another two years. The, the, the army and the Hutu extremist militias were controlling these massive refugee camps in eastern Congo. 
Um, they took all their weapons with them, they took the entire Rwandan treasury with them, and were using that as bases to launch raids back into Rwanda. So obviously the new government in Rwanda is none too pleased about that. Um, so then in October 1996, so two years later, two and a bit, um, they invaded Congo. And that's kind of what started off this this whole catastrophe. Right. So, so all that happened, there was, as we know, you know, there's big conflicts when, you know, when the, the wars were really kicking off when they invaded, as you said. But now, you know, ostensibly that is kind of finished, but it's not. And I was reading the other day, there were farmers fighting other farmers. There were farmers fighting tribesmen. There are, you know, Islamist uh, militias. There's all sorts going on. Maybe you can talk about the current situation. Basically, you know, those invasions and the wars that kind of came after them totally splintered the security situation. Um, so dozens of these uh, militia groups popped up. Some of them are foreign groups like Rwandan groups, Ugandan groups. There's Burundian rebels as well. Um, tons of Congolese ethnic militias that kind of pop up to protect their little areas, um, you know, go after um, mineral mining, other things like that. So I think right now it's between 120 and 140 um, different rebel groups in these four provinces or five provinces in the east. Um, and so th there was a peace deal in 2002. So things kind of tapered off a bit, but it's always simmered on since then. And a lot of the just the, the proliferation of weapons that came in in that period have made it really, really easy for people to take to arms. And the, the state is quite weak in the East. Um, so it's it, it's very easy for people to try to settle the differences with violence. Right, and which are the, the, the main groups fighting now? You know, I read that there was something like a million people uh, displaced last year or the year before due to just inter-militia fighting here, there. Um, you know, who, who are the people causing the real problems right now? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'd say there's probably six main hotspots in the east. Um, there's in Aturi, which is kind of the, the northernmost of these areas. Um, you've got inter-ethnic fighting between uh, the Lendu and the Hima. Um, so the Lendu are traditionally the farmers and Hima traditionally cattle herders. Um, the Hima were very much favored by the Belgians, so they're a little wealthier, more access to education. Um, and then when the Ugandans invaded during the war in 1999, they put a Hima as governor of Aturi, which kicked off a really nasty kind of war within a war that lasted until 2007. Um, so in 2007, FAR DC, which is the, the National Army, and MONUSCO, which are the UN peacekeepers, deployed in force and really kind of tempered things down. But that kicked off again in December 2017. Um, so it kind of the, the six months after that, up until summer of last year, um, it basically kind of devolved into an ethnic cleansing campaign against the HEMA. So about 350,000 people were displaced. Maybe 40,000 um, fled to Uganda. Um, so Far DC deployed again last summer um, and tempered it a little bit, but then in September it kicked off again. Um, and the allegations are that these Lendu militias kind of got orders from on high to destabilize the situation again in the run-up to the election, which was in December. Um, how true that is is, is is kind of debatable. I mean, rumors are as they are. Um, 
kind of going south from there to like the the next hotspot would be the the ADF, the Allied Democratic Forces. So this one is in the news a lot. This is the new Islamic State Central Africa province. Um, so this is a, a Ugandan group that tried to stage a revolt in Uganda in the early 90s, just got you know pretty resoundingly defeated and fled across the border into Congo um, and has been there ever since. So they've been there for a couple decades now. Um, they kind of integrated themselves into um, you know, the war in Congo. And for, for a little while, they were, they were using the territory to stage raids back into Uganda again, but Uganda's got a pretty um, competent military and, and defeated them by like 1999 or so. Um, so they've been kind of limping along ever since, but in 2010, um, FARDC launched a, an offensive against them to crack down, and they basically responded by carrying out reprisal attacks on Congolese civilians, which they hadn't really done before that um, too much. They had they had tried to keep into the good graces of the locals. When you say, like, you know, retaliation attacks, I've read a little bit about them. They're basically just going into villages and just killing everybody, right? Yes, exactly. Incredibly brutal. Oh, horrible. Um, so 2010, it kind of started with mass kidnappings. Um and then in, in 2014, as, as the, the FARDC's kind of military pressure ramped up, they, they just went um, straight to massacres. So since then, they've probably killed uh, somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 people, um, you know, it, pretty consistently, um, but also attacking military positions. Um, that's probably the, you know, the hottest uh, zone of insurgency in the east right now well, i keep seeing you know oh isis is in the congo now so basically for a while i was like bullshit no they're not but then it seems now they've what pledged allegiance or what's the situation with the adf and this kind of isis link yeah so they are islamists and they always have been um but they were a little lighter they weren't quite you know isis islamists um that definitely took a turn as the military pressure stepped up um so they they started adopting more of kind of your, your traditional Salafi jihadist language, you know, talking about the, the infidels and who was Muslim and who was not. Um, and, you know, I think a big part of that is as they were kind of struggling and looking for their, you know, identity in the region. And, you know, this is a foreign group there. They have some difficulty recruiting Congolese. Um, and, you know, Congo's Muslim population is, is, is tiny. I mean, it's you know, 2% or something. Um, so they kind of needed to attach themselves to a, a broader brand um, in the hopes of attracting finance from abroad, um, as well as foreign fighters. Um, so their, their main leader, Jamil Makulu, was arrested in 2015. And he, was, he had a British passport and was getting um, money donated from uh, Muslim associations in the UK. And so when he was arrested, that kind of financial tap closed off how the fuck did he have these connections all the way in the uk you know and he's running this islamist group in the congo that's a mad story yeah he he got around quite a bit kenya uganda tanzania um so i'm not exactly how he got the passport but he was definitely in and out of the uk quite a few times this guys jumping back and forth from the middle of nowhere in congo to the uk mm -hmm. uh, um so basically since then i think they've really tried to solidify their identity more and kind of the the, the global international jihadist brand, um, ISIS being the most salient one. So those, they started adopting some of the motifs. They changed their name to 
um, you know, the city of monotheists and holy warriors. They adopted the flag. Um, they, oh yeah. Um, so I'd say probably the, the biggest actual connection though is, uh, a guy was arrested in Kenya who was moving money to them. So it wasn't a huge amount. The, the, um, indictment said $150,000 for multiple ISIS affiliates around the continent. Um, so how much actually got to the ADF in Uganda is, or in, uh, in Congo is, is somewhat debatable, but those ties are definitely there. Baghdadi, um, recognized them. It was in that video he came out with recently. It was one of his little, uh, binder booklets. These guys are now officially ISIS in where exactly? Not just the Congo. Uh, well, they call them Central Africa province, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're really only operating in, um, Beni territory in North Kivu in in Congo. Okay. Where are they? What you know? Obviously, they must have some kind of training camp. Where are they? Are they, are they in the jungles? What's going on? Yeah. So there's a kind of a, a national forest called Simuliki Forest that's very close to the Ugandan border. So they do recruit a lot of people in Uganda. That's probably the majority of their fighters are actually Ugandans. Um, but yeah, it's I mean it's pretty rough terrain out in the jungle. They've got some training camps um, and. It's very easy for them to move around in those camps and kind of er, and and through that forest and you know emerge onto the villages that are clustered along the the major roads. Um, and Munisco and the Far DC have had you know a hell of a time trying to track them down and actually uh, defeat them. They've they've suffered some pretty serious casualties you know in ambushes and against these guys. As ISIS Central Africa, what kind of attacks have they carried out? Um, it's, they haven't really been particularly different than the kind of attacks they were carrying out before. Um, so, you know, emerging from the jungle, attacking villages, uh, killing people, abducting people, stealing cattle, um, attacking military positions, ambushes on Fardc and Minusco. Um, so that's, it, the, the style of attacks haven't, haven't really changed since they pledged allegiance to ISIS or anything. Um, it's, it's kind of what they've been doing since 2014. Right. And what, what is their goal? I mean, you know, kind of a kind of disjointed ISIS group in the Congo, in the jungles. It just seems to me like just another franchise, if you like, do you think they actually pose a threat? I mean, there are so many conflicts going on in the Congo, as you've said. Oh, people definitely do now. I mean, you know, right. thousands have been killed. Tens of thousands have been displaced. It's, it's very serious. So they're just, they're just going about killing people. That's basically their MO. They're just going about and murdering people because, I don't know, jihad. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like there isn't a rationale to it. Um, it's kind of hard to see what they want their ultimate objectives to be because, you know, the, the idea that they're going to carve out some emirate in the jungle when they have, you know, 400 fighters, you know, four to 500 fighters, and it's, they're kind of bringing their families along with them when they carry out raids on villages. Um, so, I mean, these guys are really roughing it, so I don't, it's kind of hard to see what they think their end goal would be, but, you know, when it, when it comes to pledging allegiance to, to Islamic State, I, I don't think it was with some grand plan. It was kind of, you know, we need resources and ISIS needs to look like it's expanding because they're on the ropes as well. Right, right. So, you know, for ISIS, it's handy for them. And then for the, you know, their previous group, it's handy for them as well because they get this kind of connection. Yeah, exactly. And right. I think a big thing for them is is foreign fighters as well. If they can kind of adopt that brand that's got a lot more traction internationally, I think their, their hope is that they can kind of get more people.
Sure. Um, um, I want to talk about the military because obviously they're up against a lot here. You know, like you said, you've got several different militias battling each other in the east. You've got, you know, this now ISIS branch in the jungles. How well equipped are they and how are they doing in terms of, you know, fighting the, these various conflicts? Um, it varies a lot. Um, so the FARDC was created after the war as kind of an amalgamation of the National Army and a variety of rebel groups. Um, so it's been kind of a long process of integrating into a command structure that's more stable and actionable. So they had, on, on multiple occasions, there were rebel units that formally became part of the FARDC and then mutinied and kind of kicked off new wars. There was a that big one in 2006-2007, which was a, a Rwandan-backed unit rebelled um, and was the biggest major flare-up of violence since uh, the, the war ended. And then that happened again in 2013 with the M23. Um, so it's... What, sorry, what's the M23? Uh, it's, it's another Rwandan-backed group. Um, they were basically angry that... Uh, parts of the, the peace deal with the, the group that, that uh, mutinied in 2007 weren't implemented. Um, and so they mutinied again and took over a, a, a huge chunk along the Rwandan border, in, including Goma, which is the biggest city in the area. Um, so they, they were beaten back and defeated. Um, the United States got quite angry with Rwanda and told them to back off and stop helping this group. And so the, the group was pretty... You know, it was defeated, um, but it was a, a pretty serious war. I'd say what's kind of most interesting about that is that it uh, actually kind of provoked the, the UN Security Council to adjust the mandate for the peacekeepers. Um, so they got a, the Force Intervention Brigade, which is like a heavy offensive unit of peacekeepers with artillery and attack helicopters and all the rest to really take it to the militias, um, which peacekeepers usually don't do. Um, and so the FIB and MINUSCO have been there ever since, obviously, but it's the FARDC and the government, it's, it's kind of messy, you know, the, their, their relationships with armed groups vary and how they deal with different armed groups is, is quite different. So sometimes they're allies, sometimes they're enemies, oftentimes it changes. There, there can be a lot of corrupt deals over things like, um, mineral extraction or, or, or timber and other things like that. So it, that affects a lot about how the army will actually go out and deal with rebel groups. It sounds like such a, a mess, you know what I mean? But, you know, you mentioned mineral, mineral extraction there. Maybe we should speak about that because, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. The Congo is fucked, but it's not really, you know, the West has had a lot to do with that. You know, like you said, mineral extraction. Well, it's it's one of the most mineral dense places on Earth, right? Yeah, it's one of the poorest. You know, maybe, maybe we should speak about that. Why have so many people from the outside kind of gone into the Congo and done this, that and the other to make it the way it is? Yeah, so on, on the mineral part, I mean, Congo is one of the, the wealthiest countries on earth. I think one of the estimates I've seen is $25 trillion worth of, of stuff in the ground. Wow. Um, and that's, you know, just what they've estimated now. Um, I think uh, being in an active war zone for the last 20 years, there hasn't been as much exploration as there, there would otherwise be. Mm. Um, so the, the issue of conflict minerals has 
settled down a little bit more recently. Um, it was a massive, massive factor during the wars, um, especially coltan, which is a, a tin ore that's used in cell phones and electronics. Yeah, they use it for the screen, right? Uh, yeah, I believe so, or maybe the battery. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, it, it's it's funny when you see these kind of, uh, you know, hyper, hyper anti-imperialists with iPhones. It's like, well, you know, your uh, your screen was probably made by some kid getting whipped in a mine somewhere in the Congo, you know? Yeah, and so, I mean, that that got quite a bit of international attention. Um, mm. Obviously, no one wants to be walking around with, you know, blood minerals in their pocket. They, there has been quite a, a fair bit of progress on that. Um the Dodd-Frank Act, the Financial Regulation Act in the U.S. in 2011 um, actually had a, a clause in there requiring American manufacturers to certify where their minerals were coming from, um, which sounds good, but the, the kind of backlash on it is that it's you know really, really hard to do that in Congo. So a lot of times these companies were just not buying from Congo, which then you know the economy collapses, which is not good from a conflict perspective. Um, and then there's there's also kind of civil pressure on a lot of companies like Apple to to certify that sort of thing. People don't, you know, Apple doesn't want to be associated with that from a reputation perspective. I, I read about this years ago, and it's actually also quite easy for Apple to get around it. For example, they can say, well, hey, we bought this coltan from this broker over there, and he said it didn't come from there, so therefore we're good. You know what I mean? The, the laws are very flimsy in terms of how they can get around it, or it was at the time I read about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult it's definitely been kind of a, a, a thing in progress um for the most part what i've read it's become less of an issue those kind of industrial minerals um so a lot of a lot of groups now are more focusing on um illegal gold mining um gold's just much easier to smuggle um much easier to to hide what it is and where it comes from um and so a lot of those a lot of that gets smuggled out to uganda which Interestingly, there is a Uganda has doesn't really have huge gold reserves, but is exporting large amounts of gold, which kind of sets off some uh, red flags. Yeah, funny that. Yeah, where did that come from? There's actually a, a big gold smelter that's like directly down the street from the airport in Entebbe, um, outside Kampala. So it's nice for for exporting it. Um, so yeah, I'd say gold is probably the the biggest commodity in terms of of conflict minerals now, and a, a lot of groups depend on that as their uh, their their main source of revenue um and fight over it accordingly so, so are a lot of the militias fighting over control of land not because they have a particular political scenario but because the gold is over there and we need to take control of it when it's illegally being mined is, is that what it is yeah in a lot of cases i mean it's definitely not every single thing i mean you know with 140 rebel groups you don't want to paint it with uh broad brushes but for a lot of the big ones yes um so there's one group um the Nduma Defense of the Congo Renove, um, NDCR. So they're probably one of the strongest groups in Congo now. There are maybe 1,200 fighters, very well organized, um, got very good relations with the National Army. Um, they mostly fight over gold mines, um, and they make a lot of money from it. Um, you know, I think one of, one of the UN reports put it at $140,000 a month, um, which goes a long way in Congo. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. So they've been, it's been kind of convenient for the military because, you know, they're fighting for these, these mining areas is kind of where they've been focusing. But a lot of the people they're fighting are the FDLR, who are kind of the, 
the remnants of the Rwandan Hutu militias that carried out the genocide. I mean, it's 20 years ago. Most of the fighters in those groups now are kind of you know, born after the genocide, but that's where, where those groups came from. Um, and the military also fights that group. So the military and the NDCR have a quite good relationship and have done, you know, joint patrols. And a lot of the NDCR fighters have um, FARDC uniforms, that sort of thing. So not all the militias are a threat to the state as such? No, definitely not. Um, I mean, I, I kind of hesitant to put a, a number on it, but a huge number of them kind of act as auxiliaries of the state or auxiliaries of traditional kind of customary chiefs. Um, the state's quite weak. You know, there's not police in a lot of these outlying you know, villages and areas like that. So these groups that you know are called rebels are, you know, in oftentimes kind of the the security forces for the the traditional authorities that actually rule in those areas right i mean they're rebels in the sense that they're kind of rebellious and they're militias and they're not attached to the government but they're not actually rebelling against the government yes um but obviously that's pretty flexible and changes and sometimes they are and sometimes they are and it kind of depends on local circumstances and local politics and kind of what's going on in the country um so it's yeah, it's it's pretty messy, and it gets one of the the good euphemisms I've I've heard is these onion layers. So you've got you know layers of all of these conflicts from you know down at an incredibly local level to more regional level to national level politics to international politics, and all these layers then impact one another and change how all these different actors at all these different levels um, kind of gauge their situation and react accordingly. So it's very complicated because what one local militia in a village or a town is doing might be steered by, you know, national policy in, in Rwanda or something, or in Kinshasa, which is a thousand miles away. Um, but then what happens in those areas may in turn kind of change how those national governments behave as well. Jesus Christ. So how is uh, the Congo split up? You know, what is it split up into districts or counties, whatever? How does the government even try to keep control of the whole country? Um, so there's 26 provinces, I believe. Um, so there's you know, provincial governments, districts, territories. Um, and kind of who resides in those positions is, is pretty sought after. I mean, obviously those positions of power come with oftentimes a lot of wealth. Um, so that's oftentimes a, a, a huge factor in when conflict breaks out, um, is competitions over those, um, you know, the governorship or, or members of parliament or things like that. Um, so say so security is primarily done by the far DC. Um, but you know, I've talked about it's, it's obviously pretty messy. Um, but I think probably important to say that the, the FARDC has come along, um, come along quite a bit. Um, so, you know, I've looked at some of the surveys and, you know, 10 years ago, the, the army was the, the least trusted security institution in the East that if you were to ask civilians, you know, who do you fear the most? It was the army. Why is that? Because uh, they were carrying out a lot of the same abuses that a lot of the rebel groups are infamous for. Um, right. You know, looting villages, killing people, a lot of sexual violence. Um, that has kind of gradually over the last 10 years changed. So now the army is 
not, you know, it's not like people love it and trust it with everything, but its um, its reputation is definitely improved, and the reputation of rebel groups has often gone down. Um, and so it's kind of this low simmer off of, of rebel activity as uh, you know, people put a little more trust in, in the state. Right. Is, is there any one thing then, you know, with that in mind, that unifies the Congolese? A uh, very, very proud national identity. I mean, that's for yeah. sure. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and you know, very active politics. You know, it's not just rebels and guys with guns and everything else. It's, I mean, they had this election in, in 2018, in December 2018, that was postponed for two years. And, you know, these are, some of these towns are, you know, places like Beni in the east. You know, Beni is kind of infamous for the Allied Democratic Forces attacking it and massacres and... Um, you know, the, the Ebola outbreak has happened in the same area, but, you know, at the same time with this election, there were massive, massive election rallies in these areas. Um, people very engaged with national level politics. It's, it's definitely not a situation where people are totally disengaged from what's happening at a national level just because it's, you know, far away. Um, so yeah, that, that sense of identity is, is very much there and very powerful. Okay. Well, with that in mind, then, is is there any specific, I don't know, armed group that is kind of a nationalist armed group that's saying, yeah, we're going to take over and we want to, you know, rule the country better? Because you would think that, you know, in that context, that there would be at least one of them going, you know what, let's not fight over the gold mines as much and let's try and fix things. Um, some have definitely kind of talked about that. But none are really powerful enough in a way where they could even, like, pretend to try to pull that off. Um, so there was one group, the Maimaya Katumba, um, they're in South Kivu, so a little south of the, the other areas we were talking about. Um, they really kind of remobilized after 2016. So for a little bit of context, the, the, there was supposed to be a presidential election in 2016. Um, and the president, Joseph Kabila, was supposed to step down. He ran out of term limits. Um, there was supposed to be a new election, and they just didn't have that. Um, so for two years, there was, there was a constitutional crisis. Um, and so this, my, my group, Yakutumba, um, that was kind of their main calling card is, you know, we're, we're fighting the, the illegitimate Kabila regime. Um, they also kind of put it in the context of, of Kabila being, you know, a, a stooge of the Rwandans. Um, and so they they framed it as not only fighting the illegitimate national government, but that national government is a puppet of foreign powers. So we're also fighting for the sovereignty of Congo. Um, so they got, you know, fairly substantial, took over a, a pretty wide swath of territory, um, and were implementing, you know, their own state life structures. I mean, they were doing passport control at the border and taxes. They had a little navy, um, which they they launched a naval attack on a on a, a town on the lakeside, and then they launched a naval attack with with what? Like what kind of boat? Uh, they just had speedboats with machine guns on them. Oh shit, man! Yeah, and then um, the Minusco, the UN peacekeepers, got mobilized and with used their attack helicopters and wiped them all out almost immediately. So yeah, that kind of <laughs> went south. Um, so they, they got beaten back pretty hard. Um, the, the military launched a, a pretty wide offensive on them. And, you know, I think at, at their peak, there were like 1500 combatants and now it's like 200 or something. And they're kind of on the run in the jungle. Um, 
Right. So it's, it's there's definitely groups that like appeal to these ideas, but I don't. None of them are are strong enough or have enough of a national scope to be able to like pull off some sort of national rebellion. Like they, these are all very local groups mobilizing on a very local basis, usually around you know specific ethnic groups. Right. It, it sounds to me like the militia situation is so scrambled and splintered that it's almost just gangs really like they control this and they control that but no one can really rise up as such yeah um i mean definitely for a lot of them they're more bandits than anything um but you know some of them are these little armies and they're they're well organized and they're well equipped um but i i think also that the the security forces are pretty good at co-opting groups that really really pose a threat you know, steering them towards rival groups that the military would like to deal with or, um, you know, otherwise kind of accommodating them into a, a, a structure where they don't really pose a, a threat to the state. Um, the, there's been a, a long history of that in the East as well. Right. So, I mean, that's a typical kind of tactic anywhere, right? Like make them fight each other so they leave us alone. Yeah. And, you know, if they're, if, if you can steer this rebel movement towards someone else you can kind of use them as an auxiliary um and they'll be you know perfectly happy to to fight for you or fight alongside you of course um and you said they're well equipped where is everybody getting all these weapons from to be honest i'm quite ignorant on uh you know where weapons come from in africa as a whole you know why why is it that everyone seems to be able to start a militia um well i mean the the war in congo from 96 to 2003 roughly um was huge i mean this was the the deadliest war since world war ii um had nine african armies um in congo at one point or another um you know dozens of these militia groups so just the proliferation of weapons are are everywhere um and then you've got Central African Republic, South Sudan, Uganda, Burundi, on you know your northern and eastern borders, all of these places have had you know, pretty severe instability at one point or another. Um, so, and you know the the Congolese state is not particularly strong, especially for things like border control. So it's be very hard to stop smuggling. There are already a lot of weapons in country. Um, they're just they're around. They've been around. They'll they'll probably stay around. So anyone who's got, you know, enough money to get bullets, basically, is is able to to keep a militia going. Sure. Um, and what about the uh, the corruption situation? I know that you know corruption is a huge issue in the Congo, both both on the state level and with businesses and all sorts. Um, is the current government doing anything better? Would you say to combat that? Because I know that it's been a long, long issue, right? Yeah. Um. So it's kind of a, we're kind of in a wait and see period right now. Um, so the old regime under Kabila, um, he left office in early January of this year, um, was kind of world renowned for corruption, you know, billions of dollars that were um, embezzled and funneled offshore, tons and tons of property and mineral extract, uh, mineral um, concessions throughout the country. Um, but he left office, and now there is Felix Shishikedi, who's the, the new president. Um, and so people are kind of waiting with bated breath to see how much of a change Shishikedi is. I mean, he came into office um, kind of in a, in a pretty corrupt deal. Um, and 
the allegation is basically that it's almost like a Putin Medvedev sort of situation where Shishikadi is kind of the the face of the presidency and is promising this, that, and the other thing, but really Kabila is still the power behind the throne. So how much Shishikadi is actually able to deal with things like corruption, um, we'll, we'll have to see because he's going to be running up against, you know, the full machinery of the state that has been built on all of this stuff, especially the security forces. Um, so they're making the right noises, but how much he's actually able going to, to be able to do and how much he actually wants to do, we'll see. And how much influence does uh, the West have in the Congo in terms of, you know, you've mentioned UNESCO and a few other institutions. How much influence do they actually have? Um, well, there's a huge kind of UN presence, both humanitarian aid as well as peacekeepers. Um, but, you know, they have to be neutral. They, can, they can't really take sides on a lot of this stuff. Um, the US for a long time had a lot of influence over, over Kinshasa, but I think with the election issue and Kabila refusing to step down, he kind of said, screw off in a little bit of way. You know, he, he wanted to stay in power. The U.S. told him not. And he said, well, what are you going to do about it? And they didn't do anything about it. Um, so now that Shishikadi's in, he's definitely trying to um, reestablish that relationship a bit more. And this is where it was kind of interesting. He, he was in Washington um, a month ago and was calling for a strategic partnership with the United States for, you know, a variety of economic and political issues, but specifically asked to join the coalition against the Islamic State um, now that the, the ADF is officially a, uh, a franchise. Um, so I think a, a big part of that is that he's, you know, he and the United States recognized him as president, even though everybody kind of knew that the election was not on. And then sanctioned a bunch of the electoral officials who declared him president for violating all these rules about the election. So now he's in DC kind of saying, okay, well, I'm, I'm president now. Let's kind of get back to work. I can be a counterterrorism partner. Um, so there's, we'll see how much the U S wants to do with that. I mean, um, I don't think Congo is particularly high in the menu for the Trump administration. I don't think it's really high on the menu for anyone. It's it's unfortunate, you know, I've, I've read, you know, I did a bit of research because I wanted to do some stories there in the Congo and I don't know, what, what, I don't know, it just seems like no one, it's like, oh, the Congo's fucked, you know, whatever, more of the same. But really there were, you know, like, like we've said, thousands, millions of people displaced and being killed and it just doesn't seem to stop, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I I think there there's not quite the same degree of social media penetration that there is for some of the other conflicts around the world and it's been going on for 25 years so i think a lot of people have just kind of write it off as oh that's just you know the thing that happens there um yeah. rather than you know kind of understanding it as being this like long-standing ongoing crisis um but yeah that that uh attention is definitely uh you know disproportionate in a bad way Absolutely. Um, I think we'll wrap it up there. But before we do, are there any groups that you want to speak about that are, you know, particularly trying to do things properly and, you know, make things right in the Congo or at least trying to help? Yeah, I mean, there's um, a ton of different international organizations um, working in the East um, that have done some, you know, phenomenal human rights work, um, poverty reduction, health, 
um, huge uh, work on kind of the endemic of sexual violence throughout the East. Um, there's a huge kind of activist movement for the East as well, where just people who are kind of reporting on what's going on and trying to hold people accountable through kind of the, the public sphere, uh, through social media, through kind of citizen journalists. There There's tons of different media outlets. It's definitely one of those situations where, you know, it's it's not that no news is being produced. It's that a lot of news is being and, and analysis and current events and all these things that are going are, are being produced by locals and really not getting out into the, the wider international audience. For for people who are interested in this, like there are tons and tons of resources if, if people want to um, kind of understand what's going on, understand who the players are, um, get involved with, you know, a variety of international or, or, or Congolese organizations. Um, there There's a, a huge amount of, of civil society that's in the East that um, you know, really definitely deserves to be more at the, the, the forefront of people's conversations than, you know, just guys with guns and ISIS and Congo and, you know, conflict minerals. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I think what it is, is people think, oh, well, the conflict's been going on so long there. And they, they sometimes have this idea as if the people are just kind of wallowing. It's like, no, absolutely not. You know, the Congolese are, like you said, they're definitely trying to, change things not everybody is a militant not at all and unfortunately i don't know man it just gets ignored i guess people would rather you know cry about social media and stuff like that but uh, it, it is a shame um ryan is uh, is there anything else you want to say before we wrap this up um i mean i think for for me what's been kind of most illuminating about congo is that um you these situations like this where you know a, a government collapses and then there's these huge vacuums of power that are filled by all of these kind of non-state groups um foreign actors and everything it, it creates this kind of super messy situation that's really really intractable but you know i think that this is in a lot of ways quite similar to a lot of other conflicts around the world i mean i, I think there's a lot of parallels for a place like syria um and I think that type of um, you know, civil conflict is something that people are really going to need to have a better conception of um, going forward. And so I think people definitely, it, you know, people who watch these sorts of conflicts um, need to be on the the lookout to look at a whole bunch of different examples to, re to really understand how these sorts of things play out and you know how we might move forward and 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 get things to a better place absolutely um and ryan if people want to follow your work on the congo and the various other conflicts that you cover uh where can they do that yeah for sure um so i think twitter is probably the the, the main thing um so it's at ryan m o'farrell at on on twitter um all lowercase no apostrophe follow me on there it's, it's mostly serious stuff but um yeah Congo, other other places as well. Cool, man. That was Ryan O'Farrell talking about the various splintered conflicts in the Congo, something you rarely hear about in the news, despite it flaring up there quite badly. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. You get bonus episodes, premium episodes, some might say. Uh, Patreon.com slash Popular Front. Go there for all sorts of extras for basically the price of one basic coffee a month. It's not a lot and it helps us keep going. 
Um, if you don't like Patreon, which is completely understandable, you can go to popularfront.co slash support. There are other ways there that you can, you know, keep this all going. It is 100% grassroots, independent conflict journalism. So that's how we keep going. If you want to subscribe to us on YouTube, there are documentaries there. Go to youtube.com slash popular front, hit subscribe and hit the bell thing as well. Um, we've got a bit of problem with YouTube still constantly censoring the content, but whatever, can't really do much about it. So if you go on there, subscribe, you know, you'll find it eventually. If you go to the shop, we've got loads more on sale there. So go to popularfront.bigcartel.com. 100% restock of all t-shirts and all sizes. And also the cease and desist bootleg champion um, collaboration jumper. So yeah, have a look at that before it gets taken down. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow me. That's twitter.com slash Jake underscore Hanrahan. H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N is my surname. Or follow the Twitter, uh, the Popular Front Twitter. That's twitter.com slash Popular Front C-O. Uh, same as the website, popularfront.co. There are articles, all the podcast episodes in order, ways to support, videos, everything is there. Contact, all of that stuff. Also on Instagram, we're instagram.com slash popular.front. And thank you very much to the following people on the Patreon. As I always say, without you, this would absolutely crumble very fast. They are Adam Berg-Snyder, Andrew Fife, Axel Iverson, Brian McLaughlin, Callum Ross, Chad Walker, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, Darby, Diana Gorvanek, Elizabeth Benicki, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Jack Mayhoff, James from the Discord, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Kyle N. Payne, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Margaret Bowling, Michael Euler, Noah, Ari, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormack from What Bitcoin Did, Cubal, Russia Alakidi, Ryan Sandercock, Scartoon Music, Scott Jonesy, Sebastian from the Discord, Surushe Hawazi, Stephen Davila, Teddy, Tom Lochrin, Tony Bin, Vida Provost, and Zachary Hinch. Thank you very much. Like I said, if you want to support, get the premium episodes, access to the Discord, audio articles, all sorts of stuff, go to patreon.com slash popular front. Music in this episode, the intro was by an artist called Home, and the outro was by Vaporwave artist Windows96. Check their music out at windows96.bandcamp.com.